Hello all and welcome to Kino Kingdom 55. Um, I'm here with Rupert and we're going to talk about some good films, some bad films and some stand-up comedy, which is, I think it's the first time we've actually covered stand-up comedy on this, on the show actually. I think so. Yeah. Which is quite telling of, uh... (laughs) (laughs) telling of our taste, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to it because I think you've got seven movies this week or seven, yeah, seven movies and I've got six. But uh, two of them are stand-up specials, and and it, yeah, it, I mean we'll go into it a little bit. But I think it, at the back of my head, ever since I reviewed Fat Tuesdays, um, that Amazon, the thing that was on the Savalas and Amazon Prime a few weeks, mm. a months ago now, I've comedy's been on my mind, and I watched a comedy film this this for this episode, and then it, I thought, I, I wonder what stand-ups like because, well, I'll go into it a bit further down the line. But yeah, it, I've a very weirdly complicated relationship with stand-up comedy. Yeah. Um, but. I guess we'll launch in with the Arkansas, uh, uh, which was. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you've got a one. Challenging. <laughs> it was. You say that it was a weird one. Like I actually meant to do because I never do them, but I, I was. I fancied doing this one, which was Maria Conchita Alonso to Sam Neill, and I just. I. I was. Someone asked me. Transvaal asked me. Oh, what you know? What is it? I'm going to list the episode, but what's the Arkansas? And I told him, and within minutes, boom. Like this two this two step I came back and I two thought steps. ah so I kind of it took the sort of zing out of me thinking I might yeah. do it this week but um, yeah I've had a few responses uh, as usual one audio one from uh, Utah Smith mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. so I'll go through them and I'll leave the the two step for for the for the last for a treat for the last so we've got <laughs> just watch um, everyone else fail first <laughs> yeah and then bring out the big guns yeah. so Maria Conchita Alonso. Uh, to Sam Neill, whom I fancy, and is in the bar. He's got a partnership in the bar. Uh, Maria Conchita Alonso is in Running Man with Yafet Cotto, who's in Alien with Ian Holm, who's in Time Bandits with Connery, who's in The Hunt for Red October with Sam Neill, and that's from Max. I haven't seen Hunt for Red October or Time Bandits. I think I've seen Hunt for Red October when I was too young to really understand what was going on, apart from it's a load of men sitting closely to each other, sweating with a red light on. That's my memory of that film. I have a feeling that Time Band- in Time Bandits, what does, what does Sean Connery play? He plays, he plays like a gladiator or something, I think. Oh, you're think? thinking of Z- Zardoz, isn't it? That was, oh, that was amazing, that film. What a movie. <laughs> um, you, and it, but, might not yeah. even, it might not even be Jason. It might be Jason Connery Jason. he's referring to. <laughs> <laughs> Your wife is crying, Rupert. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's regressed. <laughs> She's regressed with a higher pitch. She's, yeah. like, I probably shouldn't have put her in the cot, really, should I? Sucking loads of helium just to weep at the correct pitch for yourself. Um, yeah, like infantilism. Force, but... <laughs> weeping at all as a four stepper. <laughs> um, this one is from um, our regular uh, co host, Laszlo Buckets, who says, I'm going to continue working on this one. Didn't. But before I forget, <laughs> <laughs> Maria Conchita Alonso was in Running Man with Arnie, who was in Conan the Barbarian with James Earl Jones who was in Hunt for Red October with Sam Neill. So there's two links for the, uh, the the hunt, the hunt for Sam Neill. This is the audio one I received from okay. Utah Smith. No, totally scrapped that. Sam Neill was in Escape Plan with Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone is in Expendables 3 or 4 with Mel Gibson. 
Mel Gibson with Danny Glover and Danny Glover to break the two with Maria Conchita. That's, I think, a couple of less steps. Fewer steps, obviously. But uh, that, yeah, I, love uh, how, I love how you just dodged Arnie completely in that. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's working right. Which yeah, is, is a link to, because the two-stepper, when he said was in escape plan, I thought, oh, here we go. And then, yeah, he added more steps than needed um, than when he did. Because I, I was thinking this, because when we were talking about Maria Conchita Alonso, I had it, I thought, Running Man, and she's and I had an image of her in my head, and I couldn't work out what film it was from, and it was only when he sent me that, it's Predator 2, because uh, she's in that, and the Predator spares her because she's um, pregnant. Pregnant with Sam Neill's child, weirdly, which is a link. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and this this one, this is the two-stepper. Uh, Maria Conchita Alonso is in The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is in Escape Plan with Sam Neill. So I bet Utah Smith yeah, is going to listen one. to this and think, <laughs> oh, oh, flippies. Oh, fiddlesticks. Oh, oh, oh crikey, McMoses. <laughs> yeah, so so what was yours then? Should I, like, pour a cup of tea? Is it that many steps? You might hold tight. It's quite a roller coaster. Marie <laughs> Conchita Alonso is in The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's in Expendables with Sly, I think, at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, who's in... I suppose I could use Escape Plan as well. Um who's in Judge Dredd with Jürgen Prochnov, who's in The Mouth of Madness with Sam Neill. So at least I brought it back to a John Carpenter film. At least you mentioned Jürgen Prochnov as well. What a man. What a face. Um, Yeah, his wife must wake up in the morning and just see him uh, sleep lying next to her sleep and think, do I love him? Or, or am I afraid of him? Yeah. Is this, is this the guy? Is this the one? Is, I can't remember. Is, is love a form of fear? Um, so, yeah, but yeah, I do like Jürgen Proch. And he, is a, he doesn't give a hoot in that film. He doesn't <laughs> he give a and, and I can't remember. Uh, what kind of gel does he use on his hair in that? Or is it like a mousse? Or is there nothing on his hair? <laughs> <laughs> the lack of product in the early 90s. Brilliant. <laughs> So I suppose that yeah, to, we'll set up a new arc as there, but that was Transvaal with a two stepper there, and um, and Utah Smith kicking himself. Thank you for all the entries. I think what we we both decided we were going to kick off with uh, talking about Ricky Gervais Supernature as the as the um, the first stand up com- comedy show to be mentioned on the show because we've both seen it quite recently. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, I know your thoughts already, but not everyone else has. It's well, I mean, I, I suppose. Well, I, I, first, I, actually, first of all, maybe we should. Are you familiar with Ricky Gervais and his brand of comedy? Have you watched his stand-up before? I guess. I well, I as you know, as I don't watch the Savalas, but I, I I watched. Um, I've been shown rather like scenes from extras, um, and and it. And I have, I've had a couple of conversations about Ricky Gervais with a few different people recently, mostly from like real fans of his who have seen okay. all of his shows, watched all of his stand up. And I was um, thinking about it and I, and I thought, well, weirdly, considering I'm not really a Ricky Gervais fan, I think over the years, I think at different points, I've seen at least two of his stand up shows before. And I got a feeling I went to one a very long time ago. Uh, but oh, my lasting maybe. memory of it, I think he did he do one called Science? Yeah, we did. Did we go to that together? I can't remember. All I remember is for the vast majority of the show being stuck in the middle at the back, thinking I need a pee, 
And I remember it like being so fiercely all consuming all of my thoughts. Just I need to have a wee wee. I really do. And 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 I just it just couldn't so I didn't care what was happening. All I cared about was my bladder not exploding and poisoning my insides. So I don't remember much of it. But I've I've I have seen uh, at least two of his stand-up shows on on probably on DVD because it was that long ago. Um, so I'm familiar. With, I'm tellingly, whenever I am shown something from Life's Too Short or Extras, it's not him being funny. It's other people, yeah, other yeah. guest stars, like um, Patrick Stewart, for example. Yeah, like Patrick Stewart is like one of the funniest, yeah, scenes in in TV history. Yeah. So I've got I've got nothing yet. I just wanted to make it clear that I'm going to this. I've got no no skin in the game i don't I, I have nothing against ricky gervais and like again when i've seen him do little skits of like hosting award ceremonies just little bits and pieces here they, they you know they're funny and i thought well this is the perfect i'll chuck it on supernature and see what it's like i have to i have to preface this though by saying that i do have a very weird relationship with stand-up comedy as a whole when mm. i was um when i was a kid i used to watch billy Connolly pretty much on repeat because i used to find him really really funny yeah and i remember my parents when they had a huge vhs collection saying like, you can watch whatever you want but you don't watch chubby brown because my parents <laughs> And I, of course, like one day I was a pretty good kid. And then one day when I was a bit older, I thought, oh, I'm going to put it on. And I just didn't. I just didn't find it funny, even as a kid. I, I'm, and looking back as an adult, I was obviously a response. child. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah. So, so and then as I got older, people would say, oh, have you seen this comedian? Or have you, have you, have you, are you going to go and see this person on tour? And I would always just say, oh, no, apart from like Billy Conley and more recently, Stuart Lee, I would say in the last 10 years, he's the only comedian I, I genuinely find funny and, and can like sit through on repeat viewings. Yes. And a few people have said that they find it odd that I don't like. They said it's very weird that I don't like stand up comedy. And do I know how weird that is? <laughs> um, <laughs> And, I, and and it's like well when I've been to see live shows I just the hit rate just isn't there for me um like I don't like the, the last comedy show I went to which was about must have been about 15 years ago and it was in Glee Club in the Bay and it was it was four comedians and it was three of them were like actively unfunny one of them to the point that I thought oh if I wasn't quite close to the front I'd actually just leave now I'm not having a good time and then the last comedian was like okay um but right. I thought, well, is that worth, you know, an entire so 25% of, of it was OK? Yeah, exactly. And this is the problem I have is like when I'm watching stuff, I think, I don't know. I, I mean, I have a pretty funny group of friends. And what I what I like the most in humor is is either sort of like ground in built in jokes that you can only get through sort of grinding repetition between between friends and irony or it's absolute spontaneity. So stand up comedy it doesn't the hit rate isn't there for me yes. and so when i went into this i just wanted to laugh i just thought i just want to you know be amused and well we've chatted about this offline i wasn't i, I just <laughs> thought i just thought like it felt lazy the show like this you know, the ricky Gervais supernature to me felt very lazy because i was watching it and there are certain parts of his routine that actively are just lifted from other shows he's done like mm. the bit about being working class and doing that little walk and the shuffle when he talks to, like constantly bringing up how rich he is, and and then really, really like the kind of jokes you would hear, you know, in school where I think there's one partner where he says, um, or they say in comedy you should always punch down, but you can't, you know, you should you should you should punch upwards, but you you can't punch down, but you've got to punch down because you can't hit the disabled toddlers in the face otherwise, mm. and you think that's really lazy. 
that's a really lazy joke and but the thing is not only is it sort of is the whole thing sort of thematically pretty unlinked it, it has these sort of callbacks to him him like really awkwardly tying bits together where there's no there's no through line and he'll do like he'll do another joke like he says that bit about oh yeah you know when i talk to builders i sort of throw in a few swear words and like oh you're right mate blah blah blah. and then he talks about something else and you realize there's no real structure to this so Mm. you there's no you you can't enjoy the through line if you know you know if things don't really click with you as they Mm -hmm. did with me and um, like pushing the sort of defense the, 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 the targets of the humor, like with the trans, the transgender stuff and the transphobic stuff. Like I understand that comedy, you know, has to be for everyone, but pushing that to one side, it just, it, it, it was sort of cut through with these, this, this sort of false apologist stuff where he would sort of start to apologize for something and then make a joke out of it and move on. And I oh, thought yeah. it's, it's just disclaimers. That, yeah. Mm. And I thought it's not, because at the end of it, he says, "Oh, you know, I can make jokes about like disabled children and uh, what's it called, like like the transgender community and stuff." Because obviously, that's not the point of view I hold. I'm taking on that persona and that that view for like humorous effect. And I thought, oh, hu- humorous effect? Because <laughs> <laughs> surely, if you put your mind, he's obviously a very intelligent guy. Like, surely you could just like write something better. Really, that hangs, that hangs yeah. together better. I know that that sounds very similar to the way I felt about on that particular topic. Is that like some of the jokes I found sounded like genuine, like Jim Davidson jokes, except they had a disclaimer, like stating that they're irony, and I think that's lazy. I think that's really lazy to just say simplistic, um, like I'd say edgy, but just mean-spirited jokes like Jim Davidson and then say that it's irony like that's and that's supposedly the funny part I so think that if kind you of have pushes to, it under the carpet yeah if you have to add a disclaimer then the irony isn't apparent as far as I'm concerned so uh, yeah and I, took, I think Ricky Gervais is at his best when he's not being aggressively edgy but he's taking the piss out of weird cults and religion and stuff um and yeah, I, I, what I don't like about this particular one, because I have found his stand up funny before. What I don't like about this one is it was just it was a very forced, edgy kind of fuck em attitude about it where it was very shock value. It felt much more like a Jimmy Carr um, routine. And the thing about Jimmy Carr and Ricky Gervais, I find, is that I actually quite like them as people. I just don't particularly like them as comedians i think they're they seem like decent people but actually when it comes to their stand-up not that funny so but anyway they are that really edgy um kind of fuck it all attitude it it can be funny but it but i find it also opens the door to that kind of ah he just says it as it is kind of response which is never good no, I, it, that ties in what you said about liking him as a person and yet not really clicking with his comedy. It ties into someone I'm going to talk about later on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with Ricky Gervais, the, like as you mentioned about this being edgy and you know he just says it like it is and shock value. When, when I was reading about it, because I went into this totally blind. Mm-hmm. When I was when I was reading about it afterwards, I got it was weird. There was this sort of prevailing sense of oh, he always been like this. He's always sort of pushed the envelope, and it's always about you know pushing people's buttons. And I thought, but I don't remember that at all. I just remember like finding 
like some of his stuff funny and some of it not like I do a little stand up comedy but with this it felt very much like he was like it, it almost felt like if he when he set up a joke like when he was talking about um, like wanking with pictures of baby Hitler and stuff when when he would like set up a joke you could almost pause it and you could kind of work out what the punchline was going to be because you just think yes right right what's the flip side of this when, when he's when he when he's mm-hmm. la- laying up a joke that's like sort of quite sort of like seems so gentle when he's in the sort of apologist sort of segment and then you know he's going to say that flip it over and then just say oh, yeah. basically it's like oh yeah look if, at this look at yeah. this nice thing and then it'll be i wanked over that yeah or it's very mechanical know, okay. isn't it yeah. Yes, it just felt very one note. Like I just yeah. felt like it was almost like Tim Vine in how it's like it's just like a little run up, jokes done, little run up, jokes done, and then there was some very jagged parts when he was sort of just flitting between ideas he'd obviously had, but seemingly couldn't be bothered to put them into a cohesive whole. And I, I'm pretty sure there's one part as well where he says a joke, and knowing what his audience response is going to be, he says, "Oh, come on!" But he sort of he says that before they give the response, like he's on such autopilot that yeah. it's just, it, I don't know how far at the tour this was, but the whole thing just seemed like he's box ticking effectively. Yes, I agree. And, uh, I don't think he was, yeah, he wasn't on his strongest ground here, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, and no. like you say, that he's just saying it like it is. And, it, it, oh, yeah. and all that stuff is just, you know, that's he's equally just not lazy commentary. I think if you're going to wade into like the culture war and identity politics and stuff, you've got to be more nuanced and interesting. You can't just say, you can't just say edgy stuff, edgy, unpleasant, you know, homophobic, transphobic stuff, and then say, ah, but it's irony. And that's, and that's where the humor comes because that's so unsophisticated. I think someone like Bill Mayer is better at mocking like identity politics and stuff in a far more amusing and nuanced way. Um, because he comes up with actual jokes, but they're, yeah, with your face, shock, shock comedy isn't, isn't about jokes. It's about the apology afterwards, isn't it? It's uh, the thing is, when I, when I was watching this, I thought we, we both, I don't want to name him because it's someone we both know and, um, and our friends know, but we both know, have known someone in the past who we've had friends who think this person is very funny and we didn't. And it just reminded me of that, of just someone who just will just say something like outlandish in a situation. And that and that's the joke. And you think it's not, though, is it? It's just saying something unpleasant loudly. Yeah. It's not. It's, it's like, if we're all no, thinking the most unpleasant thing at that time. Just yeah, there's, too no, there's chicken shit to say it. Yeah, it's just it's, it's really lazy. It's really unsophisticated. It's really one dimensional. And, you know, when someone when you're in a situation with your friends or whatever and, you, you know, and, and you want to say something funny, your brain flits quickly through a lot of responses and mm. you kind of tick them off. And it's always like the, that lowest common denominator, that low hanging fruit is just to say something unpleasant and then you get the, oh, he's so random. Oh, God, you know what he's like? He's like yeah, I know what he's like. He's not very funny and he's lazy <laughs> and his humor. I know what he's like. He just says unpleasant things. And yeah, it just reminded me of that, which is just, is always just, I wouldn't say wound me up. I just, it just makes me sigh like, oh, God. Yeah. You know, come yeah, on. not worth it. And it's short as well. It's like an hour, isn't it? 
it is like I said, it's like he couldn't wait to get off the stage. Yeah. It's it was yeah, it just felt an autopilot and and I, I'm not and I've spoken to a few um um other f- fans friends who were fans of Ricky Gervais who have sort of followed him through his career and 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 they've sort of said oh yeah, it's like it's cuz I did laugh at a few bits, but again, it's not if I'm watching like an hour, two hour show or whatever, I want to be be pretty consistently amused. I I don't want to like yeah, because that's really then, all you're there for. There isn't that much else. To, yeah, it's not like a comedy some... movie where you can like appreciate the cinematography <laughs> or something, is it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, it wasn't. Um, it, I didn't. I wouldn't watch it again. To be honest, I'd be intrigued. I watched like one of his early ones just to see if uh, how much he's actually moved on because it doesn't feel like he's. It doesn't well, feel like there's anything new here. Well, no, I th- I'm pretty sure his early stuff was. Well, it was funny because, like I say, I think he's strongest when he's mocking organized religion and things like that. Um, like, as in mocking the kind of illogicality of uh, religion and, and things. And that is really where he's strongest. When he's being edgy and just being nasty about groups of people for, um, and then making these disclaimers explaining that it's irony i think that's that's laziness and it was very it felt very very mechanical to me this one yeah. very formulaic can i just while we're on the topic of stand-up comedy can i move on i also because just after this i watched mark myron end times fun which was his stand-up special from 2020 and and, and i realized um as i was watching it that it, it's uh well, i mean i'm assuming everyone i, I know him for, first and foremost from the the um what the fuck podcast with with Mark Marin, which I've listened to pretty pretty consistently on and off to for the last four or five years. Um, I, I I was aware of him doing stand up, but I I didn't because stand up doesn't particularly interest me. I had no real urge to watch it, but I was watching this and it was Lynn Shelton directed. His partner who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. I guess pretty soon after this was was after she edited this, and um, I thought I'd watch it because after watching Rick Gervais Supernature, I thought. Maybe I just don't like stand-up comedy. Maybe that's just it's not like I like parts of it, but not enough to keep me. Um, you know, I could just watch another film that I know I'd enjoy more. So I watched this, and it's similar. It's really stripped down. It's just Mark Maron on a stool, um, just just talking. And I, it was a it's a it was a weird response I had because for the first half, because I watched this pretty much straight after Ricky Gervais, and for the first I'd say half of the show. I, I, it was sort of I found it mildly amusing, um, like he's talking about um, things he talks about on the podcast about, but you know, being a Jew and uh, his parents and his relationship and so on. But yeah. it, I found that it it felt too constructed. Um, that there's a there's a there's a joke towards the start where he said, "Oh, you know, I was approached by you know three guys in the street, and one of them was like, oh my God, it's Mark Maron, it's Mark Maron.'" And then the other the other two are, are sort of oh who and he's oh you know from from the podcast and and he said it was really awkward and I just wanted to move on and then it's like oh so anyway we had, we ended up hanging out and it's clearly falsified and then it, and and it's like an it's a falsified situation that's unfunny mm. <laughs> it goes on for a few minutes and I thought wow. this isn't you know and and there's a, a few bits like that and it seems to pick up towards the last half where it gets more and more outlandish. And and then it end, ends up um, just completely apocalyptic and ridiculous, and that was quite funny. But I think it's 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 funny because he's gone from in the space of like an hour and a half or whatever it was from meeting people in the street um, and talking about his parents, and then it slowly gets more and more intense until it's completely bonkers. 
but there are bits when he okay. starts sh- he starts shouting and he's hunched over and like pr- putting on like a shouting voice and you think this all feels very constructed but i did like the overarching kind of narrative in how how it kind of funneled out and eventually there's this ridiculous concept at the end um do you think the reason one of the reasons perhaps it felt constructed is because you're so familiar with his podcast and his massive strength on that podcast is the ability to be very laid back and just have a kind of loose regular conversation with people that they really don't feel constructed at all those interviews no no it, it could be that that i'm so used to him doing that so when i hear him sort of like setting up a joke but yeah they, um but but it but i think the problem was it was like these there's it, it's when it was the situation so he's obviously devised these situations to talk about but they just weren't particularly believable and i think it's because like you say i'm so familiar with his life <laughs> through through the podcast so it was like lying. yeah it was like okay this is a thing and and it, because it wasn't funny it kind of hammered it home a bit more ah. i did notice as well i obviously going back to the stuart lee thing where he actively deconstructs comedy in some of his shows with mark maron i noticed that and I don't know if this is a trend with American comedians overall, because I might watch Dave Chappelle next. Just out of, I'm just kind of just firing at a dartboard, really, just seeing what, like, what comedy is to me. Trying to, Chappelle, yeah, I'm trying to work up my comedy with my relationship with comedy. But Mark Maron's callbacks, like, I don't think you'll like Dave Chappelle. Oh really? Well, I watched his latest one, and it's kind of, it's very. It reminded me of the Gervais thing just because, again, it's that edgy kind of shock comedy. I, but I do think he's a better storyteller and he does craft a more more sophisticated like comedy structure to his routine. So it, it kind of like if you watch the whole thing from end to end, it does actually have quite a nice kind of narrative and a good payoff. But the actual jokes aren't really that funny. Anyway, oh, fair so, enough. Oh, oh no it just it was just the last thing i was going to say was related to callbacks with them um, marin uses callbacks um as a sort of function as a mechanic quite regularly but he he does it within like a couple of minutes of the setup and he's constantly right. calling back to a couple of minutes before and it's almost like he doesn't rely on his audience to have the attention span to remember mm-hmm. things from like 20 minutes ago it was really he does it a few times um and, and i thought you can like if that was 20 minutes ago or whatever it would yeah but it was just like remember that from a couple of minutes ago so i don't know if it's uh yeah there's a fun there's a funny sequence in it when he starts talking about old technology and starts talking about like po- pocket what they call palm pilots or something and that that was quite funny because it's like i remember the scion series 5c but um yeah it was just it was such niche technology was he was referring to and i, I did enjoy that but old tech is always good but yeah i, I i'm I'm intrigued. I, I feel like I, I like Stuart Lee, but then again, it's one of those things where I, I like him as a person. I like listening to just him talk. I like his views on things. And then I like his comedy as well. But with his comedy, it's not laugh a minute. Sometimes, like, the, the, you know, the, the, the payoff between jokes can go on for like 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. but it always builds up to something. I always feel like I'm involved and I'm immersed. Yes. And I know there's going to be a through line. I think with other comedians... I think when it's just like they're basically just rotating the the Gatling gag cannon, I just think, oh, this nothing. I I don't know. It feels so superficial. It, it just feels mm. like constantly eating sugar. So, 
Whereas sometimes you want to have like a, I don't know, a banana, a banana bread. And you're eating banana bread thinking this is a bit dry. But then someone says two seconds and they pop a knob of butter on it and bang it in the microwave for 30 seconds. And you're like, oh, here we go. This is what it was all about. It's the same thing, but tarted up. Same thing, but it makes you instantly clasp your heart. <laughs> yeah, so that's um, I am I may continue, I may not, but I, I think as well I was spot because when I was watching that Fat Tuesday, and apologies for carrying on, but you know we don't often talk about um, stand up comedy. When I watched Fat Tuesdays and they were cutting back to clips of people in the nineties and there were, I didn't the, the like I said at the time that some of the jokes that the you know your mama jokes are effectively you know bloody you know ear indoors sort of jokes effect you know yeah. really but it was the it was the energy and the intensity of the delivery and bernie mac six minutes is one of the funniest things i've ever seen mm. um and i think i was kind of spoilt by that by like the, the 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 positive because there's like this positive convivial communal atmosphere in fat tuesdays which i really yeah. highly recommend and then going from that to just like a, a bloke on a stage just like pointing at like the easiest targets and then being lazy with them i just thought yeah by the way that won the best stand-up show of the year at the comedy awards which one uh ricky gervais super nature oh really so that's like the best i don't know if it's worldwide or if it's a british thing but i mean i don't watch much comedy but i thought really that's a bit seems lazy yeah oh, yeah that that's a bit depressing if that's the best <laughs> yeah well that's the most forward thinking or was it just the most popular mm. um so yeah that was that was uh, my foray into comedy for the week anyway okay should we talk about top gun hang on i have got to talk about all the jim davidson dvds i watched jesus <laughs> imagine that i'm sorry go on, let's talk about oh, i would like you to talk about top gun yes i would <laughs> i just remembered i saw a clip of uh jim davidson in some interview recently and he literally was going he was talking about the ricky gervais special and he one of the things he literally said was because oh, we love ricky because he, he just tells it like it is <laughs> Like, Jim Davidson saying <laughs> just tells it like it is. Amazing. Jim Davidson endorsing you. It's like if <laughs> it's like if Fred West said, God, uh, well, Brit, hell of a gardener. Hell of a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> um, Top Gun. I watched Top Gun on Rakuten, the worst streaming service. Because <laughs> I got it for free. Although, it, <laughs> although it, it is discounted currently on for rental on prime if you want to watch it but um so top gun was directed by tony scott in 1986 well, before you do this did you when you yeah. you say you watched on recruiting the worst streaming service yes did you did you have any trouble or was it just like you clicked on it and it worked or did you have to like open I, up um, windows 3.1 laptop and then well if you remember i think last time i mentioned the fact that <laughs> with certain films on the app you go to like rent them and it comes up with a box saying oh if you want to rent this you have to go to the website to activate it and then come back to the app so i was like okay so i went to the website put the redeem voucher thing in i got it and then it comes up with a box on the website saying oh play an app so i thought okay cool just tap on that it'll open up the app tapped on it it opened up the app the app crashed so i tried again and it kept crashing and it said oh so i had to just open up the app and search for the film i just purchased for rental Amazing, amazing. Rakuten, if you're listening, we would love nothing more than your sponsorship. A couple of T-shirts with Rakuten, the worst <laughs> streaming service. And wear them all day. Wear them all day long. Uh, yeah. So anyway, Tony Scott, 1986, and this was. Uh, it's it's 
like a military character drama for the most part, interspersed with combat training sequences, and it ends with a, an actual live mission. It is an action movie, just about, but it's not a relentless uh, action movie. Um, so it's about Pete Maverick Mitchell, uh, played by Tom Cruise, and his wingman. That uh, that's actually his name. I've got yeah. a word to start with Maverick. <laughs> Um, Peter and, Mitchell. It's not really. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so he's got a wingman called Goose, played by Anthony Edwards, with a tash. And um, they're sent to the program where they meet a bunch of buff, puffed up rivals, including Val Kilmer, who plays Iceman. Also on site is uh, Kelly McGillis, playing an, uh, an instructor who intends to teach the boys best practice, basically. So. Maverick and this lady, um, so Cruz and uh, McGillis, they fall for each other. And whilst at the same time, all these well, very dramas, with it, you're, you're talking about the original. This is Tonka yes, now. Yes. Yeah, you're yeah, not, yeah. So are you going to talk about the new one? Yeah, I'll talk about the new one. Once it oh, nice. OK, sorry. I have to wait lost. 40 years before it oh, comes so- out. <laughs> were you thinking, were you think to yourself, this sounds very familiar. I was thinking. Did they really be allowed Kelly McGillis yeah, again? Because I thought it was Kelly McGillis even in it. Yeah. No, that's fine. So you, that's fine. So you are going to talk about two of them today, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. thank God, that's exciting. Okay, yeah. thank you. Sorry. Um. Yeah. So all these team team building exercises and dramas and stuff occur on the base, and the guys are fighting for top dog, basically, or a new Top Gun. So there are tragedies that happen along the way, and ultimately there's a life fire situation. But of course, at that point, it's like, oh, when the when it when the shit hits the fan, can they can they put their differences aside and come together? I think they probably can. Um, so <laughs> there's, yeah. So Top Gun, it's it's almost like there's always been a focus on the homoerotic aspect of it because there's a whole playing with the boys scene on the beach with playing volleyball, all that stuff, and that is definitely true. Although I don't think it is the whole story. And I think it undersells the fact that this is a a rare 80s action movie, especially that shows a kind of a different kind of male intimacy. Almost. It's like it's got this weird focus, weirdly unusual and quite welcome focus on masculine vulnerability. And it's all through this three pronged love story, basically. So Cruz obviously fancies Kelly McGillis. But he's also he also loves Anthony Edwards. He's like a brother. And he's got this kind of love hate relationship with Val Kilmer as well. And it's not simply the point is, it's not simply a case of Maverick just physically fancying all of these people. He he has these deeper psychological motivations. So obviously he does desire Kelly McGillis, but but also he's matched by her. She's at least his equal in terms of authority. And she she refuses to be like a conquest for him. And then you've got Anthony Edwards. Um, and Maverick isn't exactly jealous so much, but he clearly craves something of what Anthony Edwards character has, like the adoring girlfriend and the family and stuff. And, and, and then that, that kind of triggers off uh, an interesting um, bit of psychological drama towards the end. And then it all culminates with Iceman Val Kilmer. And his function is almost to pull Maverick out of this crippling self-doubt and sense of weakness that he has. And it's like you wonder why throughout the whole film, Val Kilmer's character has been just on at Maverick the whole time. And there's this whole uh, like uh, uh, kind of rivalry thing going on. 
and he's been making him feel completely inadequate. But but what's quite nice about that is that in the end, he's actually there to reassure Maverick that he is in fact good enough sort of thing. So he's almost, he's in the perfect position to drag him out of his kind of funk of self-doubt. And it's and it's actually quite nice and profound because of course the whole film has been about being top gun um with this hierarchy bestowing an award kind of downwards but it actually ends up with the team congratulating each other and kind of equalizing each other so that's quite nice um so it's quite well structured really anyway and in a way it kind of makes it the, like the proto tom cruise film because we've talked about that tom cruise arc before you know like the cocky young buck is taken down a peg or two and he has to learn his humility and build himself back up and that's pretty much what we have here really uh in its purest form but it's quite good oh yeah and the flying's pretty good as well oh yeah and the flying's pretty good as well all you've talked about is relationships Mm. You haven't talked about anything. No, so you, did, gay. You, you didn't say the word guns or knives or. <laughs> do they, does anyone like, Does anyone ever pick up an oar and then like spend ages gouging out two circles in it and sharpening the other end and then looking through the circles at someone and then stabbing them with the other end? Oh, weirdly, it doesn't happen. No one. There's not even a scene where someone, while a girlfriend sleeps in the bed, they are in a chair polishing the barrel of their shotgun in front of a mirror watching, watching them sleep, sleep in the, the mirror is there is is there a scene where like as as a man beds a woman on a, in a beach house then a sort of superimposed image of that man standing on a beach playing saxophone is superimposed over the top is that bulletproof? <laughs> yeah, with Gary. Uh, well, I'm going to say Sinise then. Uh, Gary Boosie, yeah, of course. Amazing. What a movie. Or was there a scene of um, maybe just in the film of like someone walking up some stairs and then to show them going to another flight, they just like reverse this, the shot because <laughs> yeah. the actor couldn't be bothered to go up another flight. Till. Yeah. So and then the exit sign is literally the wrong way around. <laughs> um, um, I, yeah, I, unfortunately I've seen, not. I've You've seen, seen Top Gun before, haven't you? Yeah, I've seen it a few times. This uh, the whole eighties thing. People talk about certain films from the eighties and early nineties that um, th- that I really don't ho- hold in like a nostalgic sense. Like they were just films I watched. I was far too busy watching like Jean Claude Van Damme stuff, but or, or, as opposed to the big action blockbusters like um, like Top Gun and you know things like The Goonies. I just didn't really watch them. Mm. But I, I watched this relatively recently, as in within the last five or six years. And yeah, there was. I was so aware of all of the lines taken from it and and the homoerotic mm. undertones um, that it just it felt. Um, I, I think at some point it almost felt like a like a commercial, like scenes oh, yeah. from a commercial. Sometimes, well, but, it looks um, like a commercial, doesn't it? I mean, Tony's is so stylish, ridiculous, and it <laughs> seems to be constantly. Well, it's constantly shot at sunset. It seems. The, the whole film is this bright orange glow around it. Preposterous, really. Is there a scene in it where Callum McGillis is on a horse and he's on a motorbike and they're like going back and forth doing stuff? Who's on a horse? Uh, Callum McGillis and um, Tom Cruise is on a motorbike. Is that a scene? Well, from he it? is on a motorbike. I don't remember having a horse. Mm. Oh, 
Maybe yeah. I'm what thinking of. I could even be thinking of a scene from bloody what's it called, Hot Shots Part Two or something. I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, so Top yeah, Gun it, is 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 good, um, and I think a little bit. I think it's it's kind of sophistication is a little bit overshadowed by like the whole gay thing, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah. I th- yeah, I just I do remember obviously the scenes when they're playing volleyball topless and like giggling and slapping each other. Oh, yeah, awesome. I can imagine, yeah. But I, I just remember it being more of a like I say like feeling like a commercial and almost a bucking authority sort of sort of thing. I can't, I really haven't paid enough attention to it to to comment on it in more detail. But yeah, I do I, I do like the depth with which you would do the relationships, which is the first time I've heard. Um, I've heard the film talked about in that sense. So maybe there is more for people to watch and think, oh, actually, this isn't just about no, so. men slapping each other's heavily oiled backs. Well, it is that too. Yeah. Uh, you, I, you have to go launching into Top Gun Maverick now, should we? Okay, okay. Yeah, let's go straight into it. I watched this at the cinema. Um, 30-something years later, Maverick has not risen through the ranks like his talent suggested he should have but he's still the damn best so he's brought in to train the new breed of top gun rookies that, does, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense Rupert. no it doesn't like, does no it? if he was he's, he's still the best but they no one's noticed it at all yeah well but it's widely accepted he's the best ah, but the reason he gets the gig is because his best bud val kilmer is the big chief He's really a, I, I don't know um ranks but anyway he's a big chief general whatever you know well, so, so he's, he's like so he tom cruise is like a cub scout and he's like a beaver yes <laughs> he's, he's in rainbow i don't know all those things but yeah. <laughs> um yeah so basically he's brought in to <clears throat> yeah train up these whole new generation of rookies um and so that's what happens. So the, it, basically, the film is structurally it's kind of similar to the original in so far as it's a lot of training montages, um, uh, and at the end there's the actual mission. This one's a little bit different though because what's happening here is that they are specifically training to carry out a mission in this one, and this was something I really liked about the structure of this movie because they are they're planning this very audacious mission basically um which will involve a series of preposterous maneuvers and very low level flying that sort of thing and so what the movie does really well what low level quality flying or low level <laughs> yeah, to the ground yeah. yes exactly just just the worst possible flying to really <laughs> to really confuse the enemy cockeyed bill is gonna take lead on this one <laughs> um yeah so but what what that means is is it what happens throughout the film is you you naturally become very very familiar with each like part of the mission and how it should go if you see what i mean and of course they keep messing it up so it's like it only ups the stakes and so by the end of it when they actually carry out the mission you're like i know exactly what's at stake and what's coming next if you see what i mean what they have to pull off in order to achieve this mission so it's a really cool way of doing it and uh, i like that structure um i mean the action scenes are amazing and i mean a lot's been made of the fact that they were really flying planes and stuff and it's clearly 
they nice. clearly were. Apparently, there was actually some CGI used in this as well, but I've got to say, I, I I only found that out afterwards, so I couldn't tell where that was. Probably explosions and stuff, I guess. Um, the characters in the team, uh, the rookies, they do they skirt archetype, I would say, but they not too caricatured. Um, Miles is, Teller there, is one of them like a buff Asian bloke bouncing a basketball in an office? <laughs> no, weirdly enough. Um, mm. There is Miles Teller playing Anthony Edwards' son, and he has the same moustache. Um, <laughs> and that's quite good. That's kind of where the main drama is, because, of course, um, there is uh, events in the first Top Gun, which uh, very much colour what their relationship is like in this one so that's quite good um there's a whole subplot with jennifer connelly which i thought was a bit generic at best and a bit regressive at worst because in the first film the romance with kelly mcgillis it was kind of baked into the mission dynamics itself because she was she was almost like a rival for power in that movie whereas connelly's character is just a bit passive She's just someone who Maverick retreats back to sort of thing. She's got that kind of generic like healer role. It's like not very interesting. There's a really nice scene with Val Kilmer, who is clearly in ill health. But but obviously utterly beaming uh, about it. And it's and it's a genuinely like emotion. Apparently they used this advanced AI tech to recreate his voice, which is pretty cool. So, Mm. again, wouldn't have known that otherwise. But. But there's a genuine like emotional moment here for Tom Cruise, the like of which I haven't seen since Magnolia. And it's clear that there's genuine warmth between the two of them and they're just so happy to see each other. So that was very nice. Um, oh, that's cool. And yeah, uh, what else? I, I think just overall, it's at least as good as the original. And it may even become as iconic. I'm wondering because it's, massively successful it's actually tom cruise easily tom cruise's biggest hit to date um really yeah it's his biggest well especially in the current climate as well i think it's just overtaken mission impossible fallout anyway but then i was trying to think actually i suppose he hasn't really been in massive franchise blockbusters really in the past has he he's done a lot of iconic films but none of them you'd think yeah, well, billion-dollar well, ones, are they, really? M- Mission Impossible. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're never... Yes, the latest ones have been hugely successful, but never... You know, they're not doing Marvel numbers now, and it's never been a franchise which is as reliably massive as someone like James Bond, is it? So... True. I, I, when you watch the original it. one from 1996 now, it looks like they filmed it in my cupped hands. <laughs> That was Brian De Palma as well, that original one. It's very stylish, the original, but in a really very mid-90s way. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, so Top Gun Maverick. It's a little more progressive than its predecessor in some ways. There is a woman on the team. Um, but narratively, the film has this kind of no-nonsense 80s sensibility about it, which I like. And I think that may be the secret to its success, actually, that it's very watchable. It doesn't it doesn't get bogged down in world building and well, you know, because basically most most big budget blockbusters today are huge sprawling well, superhero movies a lot of the time. And I think it's that combination of being 
grounded, uh, the lack of obvious CGI that makes it quite a welcome throwback. It, it, there's, um, I'm really glad you mentioned that. There's a nice moment between Tom Cruise and, and um, Val Kilmer because Val Kilmer is, has been in some of my favourite films with Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Spartan. And I, w- when I heard he was in this, I thought, oh, you know, he's not a well man. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad there was kind of a touch and sequence in that. And I'm going to watch this film. I'm not um, like burning for it, but I, uh, you, you've, you've definitely... You've definitely risen my interest in it, raised my interest in it. Uh, so with the um, that the this sort of team building, the homoerotic mm. undertones of the first, are they still present, or is it to an extent? Yes, and there's there's a scene where there's a beach scene where they're you know playing a I think a different sport or something, but even then it's like it isn't just a lazy kind of like oh I remember this this happened in the first one. What they mm. do is they they build some character development into that scene so it's not just a pointless scene they clearly thought well the writers have clearly thought okay you know in this scene we want this these characters to have this kind of dynamic going on um now what where can we set this well we can put the scene on the beach and have a nice little visual throwback to the first film without just being a lazy like rehash see what I mean? it's, it's, when you say it's a different sport is it like um they're on a beach <laughs> Tom Cruise says Tom Cruise says oh should we play badminton and then he just continually hits the shuttlecock up as high as he can and then just like watches it go out to sea and they and then they're like oh, I don't think you play badminton in high winds on a beach Tom and he's like no 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 watch watch and just continually does it and at one point he hits it so hard that it doesn't go up it just gets stuck between like the, the nest of the racket because it's so cheap and he's bought it from B&M bargains does that happen it does actually <laughs> Yeah, you must have watched on a featurette on YouTube or something. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys. Uh, I, I That's the big that. homoerotic climax. Yeah, watching Tom Cruise hit a shuttlecock <laughs> up into the sun on a beach, <laughs> yeah. and then watching just to drift pathetically out the sea. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I definitely will watch that. I might even watch the first one before it, you know, just to uh, does does it leave it open for a franchise or is it is it very much a sort of no. open and sh- no, it doesn't, does it? No, it doesn't. And uh, yeah, that was nice. And I think that, again, it all, like what I was saying before, is not about world building. It's about a few, a handful of grounded characters. And I thought you were going to say a few good men then. You could, you could have... Yeah, I could have done, couldn't I? Um, missed an opportunity, but yeah. Yeah, I, I recommend it. And it does look incredible. It's directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who is... Certainly a talent. He's the um, guy who did Tron Legacy and Oblivion and the underseen um, Only the Brave. He makes very visually um, amazing films. And I think he's, yeah, he's got something about him. Yeah, Tron Legacy. Fair play to me. How old is he then? He's 48. Yeah, filmography, 2010 Tron Legacy. Christ, imagine that being your directorial debut. Jesus. And then, yeah, yeah, Only the Brave, Top Gun Maverick, and Spiderhead is next. Yeah, so apparently that's not great, unfortunately, but, yeah, I'll watch it. Um, yeah, so, well, no, that, thank you for that. I, that that's going to that's gonna get me involved. I, mean, I am going to watch that with my eyes and my feet. 
Um, I have got a film actually that, that has been <laughs> sort of bouncing around Kino Kingdom for a couple of years now. I think I think uh, our regular co-host Laszlo Buckets said, you know, I really think you guys should watch The Hard Way from 1991, starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods. And um, I, I cannot wait to describe the cover to you in a second. I've just seen it for the first time, because the version I've got on DVD that I paid cash money for um, is, uh, is a different cover. Um, but yeah, so this is... Um, it's a out of fish out of water buddy cop comedy starring Michael J. Fox and James Woods. <laughs> Michael J. Fox is... And you've never seen this, have you? What year was My, it made? Uh, 1991. Oh, my God. Uh, Michael J. Fox is uh, an actor in uh, sort of cheesy action films, and James Woods is a is a really sort of gnarly cop in New York or LA, wherever it is, and uh, New York, I think. And so Michael J. Fox is is like wants to add more authenticity to his to his roles, so he goes over to spend some time with James Woods, and this is allowed because his James Woods's captain is. Window, window, Delroy Lindo, good, uh, and his partner's obviously Louis Guzman. LL Cool J's in this as well, and he's younger than honestly some of my underwear. He was young in this. Um, but Stephen Lang in this. Stephen Lang is the bad guy, the party crasher. Yes, the serial killer. Um, oh, his hair, swept back, dyed blonde hair with a leather vest with this gun that is absolutely ridiculous the gun he fires in this film when he goes on his like rampages it, do you remember that gun that arnie uses in the first terminator where like the laser sight and the battery pack is like almost just like carrying around a microwave it's like that it? it's amazing so he uses a similar sort of gun it's actually a plot point as well um so yeah i gotta say <laughs> when I, you go into certain films with certain people and you obviously real life has to bleed into how you view certain actors, right? For instance, we know that Michael J. Fox is like one of the most wonderful men to ever walk this earth. Who's like had a really tough life is really humble and funny and warm and welcoming. And James Woods. So is James Woods. <laughs> is, um, yeah, his politics drift away from my own, <laughs> but so it's hard. And, and, and I, I like video drum. I haven't seen it for a long time. And Cop is like a really guttural film. Um, and uh, my brother Transvaal loves him for voicing the, the bad Hades, I think, in Hercules in 1997. But James Woods is like a, a very tough man to like in real life, you know, mm. with his with his, his personal view. So I was just thinking, and I was thinking this because obviously it wasn't like a film. Oh, Laszlo said, watch the hard way. Here it is on Amazon Prime. Um this was when I bought, so I, I had a few days to wait for it to turn up in the post, and I thought, I was just thinking about the actors in it, how much I like Michael J. Fox, and how much, like, I wouldn't say I dislike James Woods, but it's like, poof, you know. But of course, I went into it, and all that was kind of blown out of the water, because James Woods is really good at what he does when he's on screen. He's he's a very good, he's very good at doing this particular thing. Well, yeah, um, as New York's angriest cop, I suppose that is ideal for him, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's just yeah. Um, so the, the whole fish out of water thing, when you know they they mismatch and they have to sort of work together, that really doesn't kick in until the last few minutes because they're both filled. If you think about the style of acting they've got, especially when James was was a lot, lot younger, like he is in this film, he has got this manic. I would describe it as like a neurotic smoker's energy. Like he doesn't stop moving. He's constantly like twitching and swearing and he's very good at swearing. And then you've got Michael J. Fox, who's got that youthful, amiable, um, like sort of 
big cheesy everybody loves me thing going on but he's mm. equally equally as energetic and sort of twitchy so it's sort right. of it it really works like it's not like one's sullen and one's not or whatever one's old and one's young they both just have completely different personalities but they both have a, a real kinetic energy on screen mm. um there there are so the film is good right it's a weirdly like good film because it, it's constantly moving forwards it felt pretty brief i'm just having a look at the runtime yeah it's 100 111 minutes so it's, it's it felt pretty pretty fast paced um, I, I actually I don't often do this, but I did actually make it a little list of notes to talk about. It's a, yeah, so Stephen Stephen Lang is wonderfully theatrical as the bad guy that um, James Woods is hunting down, and Louis Guzman is the is the partner. Uh, but pardon me, what I was going to say is one of the main plot points in this film is. So I'm going to cough for a second. One of the main plot points in this film is there's a woman called Susan that. James Woods is trying to romance. Is I think his wife left him years before because of his life as a cop, because he's such an intense character in this. And his wife left him, and because she was just said you could literally the way you live your life and the way you like obviously not like real policing, but he's constantly in these like like sort of high speed shootouts. She just wanted a stable family life, and he couldn't provide that. And he meets this woman called Susan at the start of the film, and they're going out. And he is hiding the fact he's a cop from it. He's not telling her. But the problem mm. with this whole this whole setup is he, he's not a nice man when he's with her. Mm. So so when he's with her, he's still he he's still like twitchy and uncomfortable and and kind of like trying to keep the language at bay. And every time he sees anyone do anything, he's trying not to just massively lose his temper and become insanely violent uh, and flip tables. And then there's a point in the film towards the end when she says to him, look, I, and this is slightly spoilerific. She says to him, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind that your job is you're a cop, but I've got a young daughter and she really loves you, but I can't live this life. I can't, I, I can't, I can't worry about you all the time. And you're so different and so intense that we, we're, we're like, if not mutually compatible, like I want my daughter to have like a safe, like sort of sheltered life and you can't offer that. And he says, oh, you know, I've heard this before. It's, um, you know, everybody hates cops until you need one. And then they're like the second coming. And I thought it was quite a nice scene. Mm. But of course, but of course, they just get together. In the end, they just, they just get together, and I thought that was actually quite a nice scene. Which he he sort of he and he doesn't lose his temper for change. He just accepts it. It's like a really yeah. nice scene. Where he accepts. It was quite, and I get, quite I, honest, wasn't it? Yeah, and 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 it was really well written and well acted. And then I get the impression that the ending was just reshot. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> so often, um, so yeah, um, so it's it's good stuff. There's a sequence that the Laszlo Buckets told me to look out for called the Frog Dog sequence, when uh, they say they're in the in the precinct and they say oh yeah let's go and take you know michael j fox's character nick lang for a frog dog and it, they just go and have hot dogs and they just put lots of ketchup and mustard on them there's quite a funny sequence where he's like imitating him to kind of sort of pick up his um uh, mannerisms for this this film he's doing and james Woods loses his temper but going back to the food they're eating it's just a hot dog and fries and they keep calling it frog dogs and when they bite into it it makes like a ribbit sound on the soundtrack what? and and it's never explained. It's not. It's just a bloke in a hot dog van selling hot dogs with mustard and ketchup, and then it makes ribbit sounds when they bite into it. That's so odd. It's such an odd scene, and it never comes back. Uh, it never mentioned again. Well, there is a couple of scenes in this, by the way, where James Woods is clearly a smoker enough because he literally flips a cigarette into his mouth, 
Uh, and I don't know if you remember this, going back a very long time to one of the first episodes we ever did of Kino Kingdom about 18 months ago. Um, Paul Hogan had, uh, before became Big and Crocodile Dundee, had a TV show. And at the end of yes. every episode of that, as the credits rolled, he would just stand there and try to f- like throw a cigarette and catch it in his mouth. And he never did it. Mm. James Woods, James Woods does it multiple times in this film. Uh, at, oh. at the end as well of long sequences long kind of uh, physical right, sequences okay. so so james woods is better than paul hogan as an actor it's science mate it's science mate <laughs> um so yeah it's it's a it's i thought it would be it's obviously a very dated film but there are sequences where um you know james woods is pretends to befriend him and handcuffs into a bed and then he has to answer the phone and there's some good it's good physical comedy and there's some there's there's a real intensity to james wood's performance but i i almost wish it's directed by john badham as well who was directed another film i'm going to talk about in a bit so it's definitely worth a watch but i i wish i wish they hadn't changed the ending that because i think that one of the nicest scenes in the film is kind of really undermined by the fact that at the end of it, they're watching this Nick Lang film and sort of like giggling and throwing popcorn at the screen. And you think, meh, kind of took the heart out of that scene a little bit, didn't it? Mm. So, yeah, John Badham, he did Nick of Time, didn't he? He did, with that amazing film where Christopher Walken is in Johnny Depp's pockets behind his eyes, under his hat, <laughs> driving his taxi. <laughs> yeah, in his newspaper when he opens up. Yeah. <laughs> just pulls out like a leaflet um (laughs) um, yes and he also did the stakeout movies i think i covered one at least one of the stakeouts not so long ago you covered you covered both of them oh did i did i watch the second one i didn't remember that feeling or maybe i just wanted you to watch the second one so much i just fantasized that you watched it and then hallucinated what you said the first one was so uh, unpleasant i just don't think i'd bother has some dubious sexual politics in it as well. Um, okay, should we move on? What? Um, where did you, you watch that on DVD? Didn't you? Because let's face I it, I paid ca- cash money to watch that on DVD, and I think I will watch it again. I think it's a it's a bit of an undiscovered, not an undiscovered, underrated like little nineties gem because I'm a sucker for buddy comedies, and it is yeah. it is amusing, and the, the intensity to the performance is good, good. Okay, um, I will talk about dead end driving now so this you can watch this on the arrow video channel via prime if you like actually on blu-ray it's a mid-80s australian post-apocalyptic strange thriller type thing you've watched this i think you've watched this within the last four years haven't you you've i've got a feeling you tried to get me to watch it at one of our movie nights we ran out of time or something maybe maybe that would have been yeah about right i it's personal favorite tarantino directed by the one and only brian trenchard smith of course um (laughs) so the end of civilization begins in 1988 apparently it's not a single event but a series of social catastrophes basically which lead to a global recession and the downfall of society so now thugs are roaming the streets mad max style um although there are people who are trying to kind of live a normal life um uh the main hero guy uh played by someone called ned manning um he's a small fella who uh lives with his big brother and he and he 
his very much bigger brother and um and he follows his big brother around because he his big bro spends his time basically going to scenes of horrible car crashes and that and scraping cars off the road and getting money for the wrecks and stuff anyway while fighting off all these kind of like carboy um like thugs anyway so ned manning takes his brother's car one night out to impress a girl so he takes this girl out and they uh go to um this place called the star drive-in which is a drive-in movie theater basically um and they get there and then they suddenly find that they are trapped in this drive-in theater place and they find out it's actually a kind of prison camp for disaffected youths basically it's sort of a solution i guess to the crime surge so just basically get all the thugs and that and stick them in a in a drive-in movie theater um so now it's all about trying to find a way to break out um whilst also kind of resisting the temptation to actually try and make a life in this place um there's something quite nightmarish about how like fragile civilization is like because they are trapped in this place basically because there's no infrastructure there's no you know their car is screwed and there are no buses and there are no mechanics and there are no phones or anything there's there's just nothing there to for them no way of them getting out and the whole place is populated by these punks basically somewhere between mad max and like vivian from the young ones (laughs) um and there's this whole hierarchy system and everyone's kind of striving for favored status amongst the authorities. I'm not, I don't think in terms of a piece of world building, I'm not sure it's top notch. I'm not really clear what the purpose of the encampment is. It, I mean, it doesn't seem to be working that well because outside there's clearly hooligans everywhere anyway. So it doesn't seem to be actually doing much. Most of the kids in the camp are just mashed on drugs. And here's where it starts to get quite interesting because they're, Basically, they're fed the drugs by the manager of the place, and it's sort of an. It turns out to be an effective way of keeping the, the kids distracted from actually, like, achieving anything or banding together or anything like that. And then on top of that, there's a scene where all these Asian immigrants are shipped into the place, and and all the inmates start turning on them, and it turns into like kind of like a whole immigration. Uh, you know an uh, allegory type thing and and it it does try and touch on a lot of social issues should we say in quite a clunky way but it does in that regard it does have a kind of um unpredictability to it which is quite enjoyable it has fantastic neon lighting obviously and an awesome synth pop score um and actually, the, the, the neon lighting is the, the the best example of neon lighting I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, and realistically, it's having uh, like neon green and pink strip lights, kitchen strip lights in the sewers in Vamp. It's amazing. I've never seen that. It's like it's just there. Like they don't have yeah. strip lights in the sewers. And it's all shot. It seems to be shot sort of around a steelworks as well. So you've got that kind of pretty cool, like old school apocalyptic thing going on. So that's cool. Um now, Ned Manning, he is quite appealing as a hero because he's quite gormless, but very kind of kind hearted. And I think he's meant to be a teenager, but he is clearly in his mid 30s. It's he's not much of an actor as well. But anyway, there's the 
the whole place, by the way, like bear in mind that I describe this place as like an encampment where they're kind of trapped. The whole place is guarded by a single overweight middle-aged balding man. And that's it. And when Ned Manning, when he goes to sneak into the single guard's office to discover secrets about this whole nefarious enterprise, the guy has literally written his computer password on his keyboard. And that's how he, that's how he hacks into it. It's amazing. Um, there's a The final action scene is pretty cool. Basically, they just get to smash everything up, really, and with with various cars. So that's cool. There's a lot of explosions and stunts. Um, the performances are mostly pretty bad, and the character motivations are pretty unclear. And I think part of that is because, like I mentioned before, the film is trying to cover so much ham-fisted social commentary. And, and, and so, you know, for example, like when I mentioned that whole you know asian immigrant subplot it's like suddenly otherwise reasonable characters just suddenly lose their heads and i'm not sure it's like it's social commentary before believable characterization so it doesn't really ring true but um saying all that yeah it has like it does have an energy to it and it's very watchable like i don't think it's up there with the best 80s satires like Things we've talked about before, like Miracle Mile, but also like They Live and Robocop and Repo Man. It's not quite up there, but it's 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 not in their tier, but it's in their ballpark. So if you like those kind of weird cult 80s films, which kind of defy genre, then it's worth a watch. Definitely. It's interesting you should say that, um, it, it, you know, that he had all these ham fisted ideas that never quite sort of see fruition clearly because i thought brian trenchard smith sounds very familiar and of course <laughs> the two films that he wrote and directed after this a day of the panther and strike of the panther mm-hmm. those what strike of the panther filmed in a steelworks so not only did he make a film and then like make a sequel from bits of the first film that went in it but he just filmed it in the same place that the film before that was filmed so it's like That's incredible. <laughs> what a man yeah it's um yeah those films that's why i know his name but yeah it's it's filmography um dead and drive in day of the panther strike of the panther watch day of the panther do not watch strike of the panther and then you've got a couple night of the demons two leprechaun three and four in her line of fire and then the last one absolute deception drive hard with john cusack and thomas jane and then turkish shoot with dominic purcell well and he's not in the cover for Turkey Shoot. Dominic Purcell isn't. Yui Ball favourite Dominic Purcell. Isn't looking through some blinds for an hour and a half. Um, yeah, this I thought this was more of a horror, and especially looking at um, looking at the cover, because it's kind of like a Brandon Lee Crow thing going on on yeah. the cover of Dead End Driving. But, um, yeah, it's not if representative you, of the film. If you type in Brian Trenchard Smith on Wikipedia, he is wearing the top of a darts player in his picture. <laughs> so, um, and also, yeah, obviously this is a podcast. We should probably describe it. How would you? It's, it's like a, it's like a bowling top with Oriental, amazing. like sort of Asian artwork and black and white and red. It's just this. It, like, it basically, it looks like it looks like something Steven Seagal would wear. <laughs> I think it's a few sizes smaller than that. Yeah. Um, I forgot. I forgot to point out as well that the hard way, Michael J. Fox and James Woods on the cover. Michael, J., they're leaning back to back, 
and Michael J. Fox is holding a gun that says bang on a flag while his glasses mm. are like pushed down over his nose. Mm. And James Woods is looking at him about to swear with his arms crossed, holding a gun like you silly Billy. <sighs> back to back shoulder shrugs. That's what we need more of in this podcast. Um, I watched Deep Water, not that one. I I I kind of fell into this because I was looking at um looking looking for something to watch like really early on a Friday, and I thought well, Deep Water, you know, not that one. Ben Affleck, whom I fancy, and Anna de Armas, whom I fancy. I thought well, what could be better? I didn't realize the history of this. Like it was written by um or directed by Adrian Lin, who hasn't done anything since 2002 with unfaithful richard gear film i think i've seen i think dan lane's in it i saw it a very long time ago i need to watch it again um jacob's ladder indecent Reposal, fatal attraction nine and a half weeks a lot of sexy sexy thriller thriller films um mm. i watched this and i had thoughts on it so <laughs> this is this is uh, stars ben affleck and anna de Armas, and they're a couple with an open marriage which mm. she takes advantage of possibly more than he does <laughs> and he is we find that he is a very very rich man who's in this sort of new hampshirean community where everyone knows each other and everyone just has dinner parties no one works because they're all minted and they've got this little daughter and he starts to get jealous of Anna de Armas's extracurricular activities I'm going to preface this by saying this. I'm just going to be a little bit spoilerific. So skip forward, you know, 10 minutes. I know, I know I'm breaking the rule. This is literally a film released this year that I'm breaking the rules on, but um, actually, maybe I don't need to spoil it. Who knows? Um, It's filmed in a really bland way. It's filmed like it's a psychological thriller. There's lots of scenes of people in, you know, it's a lot of it is at night and it's just dinner parties and sort of stolen glances people looking out of shady windows at people kissing in the garden under a bush uh, with a sort of a set and readable expression. And what I realized is it's all kind of show because the, the the main thrust of the plot is that Ben Affleck is uh, supposedly keeps on saying, I'm not a normal guy. He says it a few times with the film. I'm not normal. If I was normal, you wouldn't be with me. And he's got like a little snail farm in his massive house that he keeps on maintaining quietly. And, and one of the guys uh, who Anna de Almas was having, not in a fake, it's not marriage was seen with, um, is found dead. And so she starts messing around with another guy, another younger guy. And when they're in the bathroom at one of these dinner parties, Many, many dinner parties that happen in this film. Ben Affleck kind of casually says to him, oh, I actually killed that man with a hammer. And if you keep messing around my wife, I will kill you as well. He sort of just alludes to all of this. So it kind of frightens the guy off. Um, And we aren't sure if he's he's when he it gets back to Ben Affleck that people this guy has told everyone. And he's like, oh, I was just joking. I was just joking. It's fine. I don't mind him being with my wife. It's an open marriage. Just ha 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 ha. The problem with this whole thing is. Because of how it's filmed, this kind of flat sort of TV drama way that it's filmed, and because there's all these allusions to, like, why has he got the snail farm? Why does he keep saying, I'm normal? You know, you wouldn't love me if I was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, what it all boils down to, and this is where the spoiler comes in, is that 
he doesn't really want to be in an open marriage. So there's no mystery. It's just mm. it's just his wife. Yeah, it sounds like he's just not really on board. Yeah, he's not on board with it. And it's and Anna de Armas, because of how she acts around other men, she doesn't come across as this sort of sultry goddess that, you know, sort of like hypnotizes men to love her. She just comes across as a brattish, silly tart. And <laughs> you you just want Ben Affleck to either this because she's not even nice towards their child, which is what Ben Affleck is really really dotes on. So you just want him to say, Right, I'm just gonna divorce. And 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 it's hinted at halfway through the film that the only reason he doesn't divorce it or one of the reasons he won't divorce it is because she'll have so much money and i thought yeah but you're you're a billionaire yeah if you have a lot of money but it will only be a percentage yeah you're in the you're in the and and you could clearly prove she's had multiple affairs while you have you're in this situation where apparently his only motivation for not divorcing her is because of money but he could afford it but then the flip side of that is we're told that, you know, he wants to keep the family together. Well, you don't need to keep your family together because she's really distant towards your daughter. Anyway, she'd rather go out flirting and shagging these other blokes. And if you, and then the other side of it, if you really loved your daughter, you wouldn't put her in this awful familial situation. You would have just said, it's going to cost me money, but I'm just going to like have us together in a house. With, a, with, and, a, with an uncaring mother who's clearly a bad role model anyway. Yeah. For that so... Bit. It, 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 the film falls apart like constantly so when you get to the bits where you know with ben affleck is he isn't he has he killed someone does he want to kill someone it, it sort of i was like well that's second fiddle quite frankly to the fact that the the basic cause of this is this is just a just a shit marriage that it's just but a, a shit marriage that's very easily fixable mm. and and um and and yeah, it, it goes on and on, and it, it, there's all these sort of brooding shots and cinematography. And I thought, it did, but there's no mystery here. This is there's no. And there they were moments at the start when I thought, as the film was getting its footing, I thought, is this going to be a, is it going to be a bit horrific? Is he gonna is he gonna lose his temper? Is it going to be really intense? Is it going to be like a home, you know, a chase? I don't know anything about this film, but it, it takes the most boring possible path, mm. and also. Sorry, in being in being marketed as an erotic thriller, yes. it's not it's not erotic at all. There's a lot of shots of Anna de Armas's feet and her like sort of like topless and stuff. But then the, there's one or two sequences where they get it on together, and you don't even see Ben Affleck topless. Uh, you know, it's like it's 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 the film films her as if she's yeah she's she's obviously a very beautiful woman, but the film somehow makes her not. It just seems to just point the camera at her. And because the, the script right. isn't doing anything, yeah, it's not. It's not. So it's enough. not even balanced in its objectification. No, not at all. Really? No, no. Uh, so there's, it's just, it's not much here. And then the way it wraps itself up, it just is very underwhelming. Even and Willem Dafoe got his kit off in uh, Body of Evidence. I just want to see a bit of ass, to be honest. <laughs> bit you of do see a bit ass. of his ass. It's nice seeing a bloke's tip every now and again, and it, I I don't know. I just thought you know Ben Affleck's a good looking guy. He's obviously like in shape and stuff, but it just it like watching two people in like a boring flat marriage where one of them is said all he has to say is can we not have an open relationship? I don't like it. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that's all the film is effectively. There's nothing else there. Yeah, that sounds fundamentally broken. Yeah, I would say that's disappointing, but to be honest, I don't. I don't really have my. I didn't have high expectations for a film called Deep Water, not that one, with Ben Affleck and Anna <laughs> Darmus, to be honest. Yeah. Um. Okay, let's not watch that. What What is it on anyway? Um. 
It's it Netflix, is. Uh, it was on. Well, it's originally on Hulu. I've got a feeling I watched this on Prime. You know. Uh, I watched the, something on Prime. Yeah. Called Thrashing, with no G on the end. Oh, this has been recommended to me all the time. <laughs> well, why on earth haven't you watched it? Why haven't you watched a 1986 <laughs> skateboard movie? <laughs> I, I um, don't know. It's weird. Now, this is directed by someone called David Winters, who was in West Side Story in the 1960s. And this film is basically West Side Story, but with skaters. So Josh Brolin is... Who am I fancy? Is the hero. And he is he's the feathered... <laughs> the feather-haired hero. He is um, the kind of cocky kid named Corey, obviously, um, uh, on the streets of L.A. Loves skating, naturally, um, as in skateboarding. Um, in in the other gang is uh, Robert Rustler, who was one of the main guys from Vamp, if you remember. He was also in Sometimes They Come Back. Um, quite quite distinctive looking anyway so robert rustler plays uh, robert hang on now was he in sometimes they come back sometimes they come back for more sometimes they come back again or sometimes i just wish they'd fuck off <laughs> all of the above um, <laughs> so he plays someone called hook and his gang is called the daggers so it's hook and the daggers it's amazing nice. um uh so i i'm not even sure it's worth going into the plot but I will say there's lots of famous skateboarders in this, apparently, including Tony Hawk. But I don't know what any of these people look like, so I, I wouldn't really recognise them. Uh, you also, there's a small part for Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks. That was a nice little surprise. I think the actors must have had some pretty serious skateboard training, actually, because it's really not obvious when it's a stunt double or the actor. It's quite well done in that regard. So, yes, sorry, plot-wise, there is a skate competition, and if... Corey, if Josh Brolin wins, that's his ticket off the L.A. streets, off the main streets of L.A. You'd think that would be the core of the film, but actually it's not. And most of it's about just unconvincing teenagers with unconvincing rivalries. And (laughs) all set in this L.A. gang culture where they don't even have a knife between them, let alone a gun. It's quite ridiculous. So must be such awkward scenes of them trying to eat steaks. Just with a fork and a spoon. <laughs> um, it does feature a live performance from Red Hot Chili Peppers as well. So you can see why this has got cult status, because it's got all these skateboarders in it, chilies and all that. Um, and, they, and the skate footage is really good, to be fair. There's some really good steady cam work at various height levels. And it almost it almost looks like, like GoPro quality at times. And it's pretty cool. And there's this final downhill chase, which is quite exciting, uh, I suppose. The problem is really everything around the skating, because the central plot is just hackneyed. It'd have to be a downhill chase, really, wouldn't it? Because if it ended with an uphill chase on two skateboards, (laughs) jumping away, gasping. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Um, because what? Right. Okay. so I mentioned West Side Story. Oh. West Side Story, obviously based on Romeo and Juliet. And what those films had was, at the core of them was a crucial character being killed, which escalated the stakes and set up the final act. But of course, this doesn't have any of that. In this, you end up with someone 
one character gets a broken arm and basically just recovers instantly from it. So, so there aren't really any stakes other than two teenage rivals egos. And I'm not that precious about that. So it doesn't really have much in the way of drama. There's also this Corey's girlfriend as well. who just dresses like a Mormon and she's constantly threatening to move back to Indiana. So I suppose, but you know, it's, it's hardly life or bloody death, is it really? So, and yeah, so other than famous actors and celebrity appearances and the skating itself, there isn't much here for the layperson that you couldn't get out of better movies from a similar period, like, you know, or Karate Kid or Grease or something like that. Uh, it's just not very well written. That's the real problem. So it's just it, everything around the fa- the actual footage yeah, of skateboarding. It's almost like it, I don't know whether I don't know whether David Winters has done skating documentaries or whatever, but you, you can imagine that would be pretty cool. But because the film is so amateurish around it, it's quite hard to watch. Like. I suppose nowadays you'd probably just you'd rather just watch a load of YouTube footage of people skating rather than have this quite uh, hackneyed teen drama going on around it. So it does. It's all right seem... for it's all right for the for the kind of uh, kitsch factor, I suppose. It does seem like his strength lies in choreography. Um, yes. Looking at his yeah, so which makes sense, yeah. but. Quite frankly, a lot of the films he made in the 90s sound like ones that would come for on a single DVD. Uh, yeah, so I'm probably not going to watch Thrashing, to be honest. No. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. If I want to do something that involves the G being missed off a word, I'll play Skitchin on the Mega Drive. <laughs> or you just have to hang on to the bumpers of cars and move forward slowly. Oh, yeah. Is that what Skitchin is, in fact? Yeah, it seems yes. like something that the police would frown upon, where they would see someone doing that, and then they would look at each other, and then they would put the light on the top and go, woo, woo. <laughs> they wouldn't even bother like turning the sound on. they just make the noise out the window to save power. The tagline for thrashing is, hot, reckless, totally insane. Should say, hot, reckless, totally generic, really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that were that was the name of like Malcolm and his brothers and Malcolm in the middle, wasn't it? <laughs> Even though I just said his name was Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Well, we're moving on to the, the last couple for me now. So I am now going to talk about Casper, the friendly ghost from 1995, which I watched. Uh, I think, uh, by the way, obviously Bill Pullman's in this, which is fantastic. Christina Ricci. Casper's human form at the end mm. is Devon Sauer, who is in Final Destination and more recently a really good bad guy in um, in a lot of low budget action films. He's really good at being a bad guy. Um, yeah, I I I, I mean I, I watched this. I'm not going to go too much in depth. Um, I just had a, a I fancied watching a kiddie film because I was I was with my son and I thought I'm actually going to check something on that maybe he will start paying attention to, maybe he won't, but I will enjoy. So. Mm. Yeah, the Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, well, not sorry, not Casper the Friendly Ghost. It's just called Casper. I keep saying that. Casper the Friendly Ghost must have been a TV series or something. I think it was the because... original character or something. Uh, uh... Oh right, okay, and they've just 
But um, it, it's uh, yeah, it starts off with a woman who I thought was someone else. I thought she was almost like Jessica Lang, but it is who is she? One second, I I, I meant to do this when I was watching her. Oh, what is it? I, I thought Kathy Moriarty. Is it Kathy Moriarty? Why can't I see her in this list? Oh yeah. So if she looks a lot like Jessica Lang, but why do I know her from? I know I'm asking you what I know someone from, but she seemed very familiar to me. She was Even, in she was in White of the Eye, that very strange Southern Gothic thriller by a Scottish director, which I went over a few episodes ago. No, it's just, just the way she looks. She just she's got like the Jessica Lang look, but she's got like a husk to her voice as well. Yeah. Um, Eric Idle's her lawyer, and she inherits. Uh, it, it, I think it's her grandfather or something dies, and she inherits the house. This uh, this really spooky manor, um, and she goes there because she believes there's a hidden treasure, but it's haunted by Casper and his. Uh, three uncles, one of whom is Brad Garrett from Everybody Loves Raymond Good, um, who is quite to me is just the Joe Piscopo of the nineties, and he and uh, yeah, so it's just Casper and the uh, his three uncles living in this dilapidated mansion until Bill Pullman, who is a shrink for ghosts, comes along with Christina Ricci, his long-suffering daughter, and we find out that Bill Pullman, the reason he's doing all this is because he wants to sort of find proof of the afterlife so he can believe that his, his deceased ex-wife has gone on to something else. There's actually a, like quite a nice sequence at the start in the car where it's all sort of like played for last and jokiness. And then Christina Ricci says, you know, you, you're never going to see her again, dad. And because Bill Pullman's a good actor, he kind of pulls it together and you can see he's like, <clears throat> oh, come on now. Oof, here we go. Let's, uh, let's have some ice cream. <laughs> That's where his mind's doing all the time. Um, so yeah, it's. I think it's one of the first films that had a uh, a fully animated main character or fully CGI main character, and it is good. Casper's voice is great, and a lot of the physical comedy is great, and all the sort of slapstick. It's a, it's this ridiculous mansion covered in cobwebs, and it does that thing of never you never have a, a sense of where anything is, so it just seems really labyrinthine. They're always mm. in different rooms and different corridors, and you have no mental setup of how the house actually is. I was one bit. I thought, hmm, there's a where she starts a new school and she's getting bullied by um, some silly tart who's like the the sort of school hottie slash bully, and they say a Whipstaff Manor is the name of the place, and um, the the sort of blonde, blue eyed, almost um, electiony. What's her name? Uh, Reese Witherspoony character says, oh, you know, we'll have the, the school prom at my house like we always do at my boathouse. And then someone suggests doing it at Whipstaff Manor. And Christian Ritchie says, oh, yeah, that'll be fine. And then the school just turn up. And I thought not only, right, not only would and the teacher says, OK, we'll do it there then. Not only would the teacher have to speak to Bill Pullman to say, are we OK to host like a school prom in your house? And he would have clearly said no. But Bill Pullman is there as a as a subcontractor of Kathy Moriarty's character. So he would in turn have to speak to her and say, oh, by the way, you know, you've asked me to come here and get rid of these these four ghosts that are haunting it. So you can look for treasure. My daughter's started at school and she suggested that we host a school prom here. Is that OK? Mm. And Kathy Moriarty would have said, no, no. <laughs> 
Go and do your job. Do what I paid you for. And stop getting people around so they can dance. So, yeah, that's what would have happened if it was based in the real life. But yeah, everyone just piles in at the end. Um, it's it's funny. It's a weird. The film is like funny and it's really well shot. It's got that kind of really rich practical effects with the, with how the manner is. And Bill Pullman's pratfalls are fantastic um, and his reactions to things. And Christina Ricci's cool. There's a weird thing where I thought that Casper was like befriending Christina Ricci's character, but he's actually like falling in love with her. And mm. the fact that he's like a 12 year old ghost and it's just odd because she's from the start. She's kind of like, you're a ghost. This is weird. Reflecting my thoughts. But this catchphrase that comes up, and I didn't know this was a catchphrase of the film, is when they're chatting one night and Christina Ricci's just drifting off to sleep. Casper goes really close to him, whispers, can I keep you? And I thought, what a very sinister, creepy thing to say to someone, alive or dead. Well, especially if you're a ghost. Like, yeah. All the like, things you could say, you'd probably, you'd adapt your language, wouldn't you, to just be a bit more gentle. You wouldn't say creepy things if you're already a ghost, because you've already got the creep factor. Yeah, you're already a ghost, so now don't You'd overcompensate, like being, wouldn't you? Yeah. You'd be like, oh, can I hug you? Or can I give you a kiss? You wouldn't yeah. say like, oh, can I greet you? Can I live inside you? Um, but yeah, there's a bizarre cameo, uh, cameo sequence as well where the three ghosts basically fly at Bill Pullman's bum and then he <laughs> looks in the mirror and just pulls different faces. And it's like Clint Eastwood, Mel Gibson and Rodney Dangerfield actually doing cameos for this film. I just couldn't imagine Clint Eastwood being on board for it. But yeah, he apparently was. Um, um, when I was looking at the IMDb entries for this film, if you look at the lists of the amount of people who were asked to be Eric Idle's role before him, honestly, I think I got a text on my pager at the time because it's a huge list of people and they must have just said, oh, fuck, let's just ask Eric Idle. He's going to be doing Jack Spratt. Um <laughs> But yeah, this um, it's kind of funny, and I can see where they made a a, a ride from this because there's a sequence where Christina Ricci has to like pull a doorknob a certain way, and then in a chair she flies underground through this ridiculous labyrinth of tricks and traps to um, get to the treasure. The treasure, by the way, which is a single vial of a liquid that brings someone back to life after they after they were dead, uh, mm-hmm. and and when Kathleen Moriarty and Eric are like over listening or eavesdropping on. Casper telling Christina Ricci this. It's like, oh, there's only enough to do type and there's only enough liquid to do this once and we can't reproduce it. And then they turn to each other and say, Oh, so we could like kill ourselves, rob a or one of us could die, rob a bank, and then come back and then bring ourselves back to life and have all the money. And they instantly just assume it will work and start trying to kill each other. And that's I thought elaborate. you you would test that out, wouldn't you? You wouldn't just you would that's like killing yourself in the hope that you could rob a bank as a ghost and then be brought back to life it's just it, it, it tickled me quite a lot because they just start going at each other um yeah just assuming it will work it was quite fun there's a couple of sequels apparently which i haven't seen really? but um yeah i i did i did like this enough to think oh, i would be interested in a sequel to see where it goes because um it it was it was kind of slightly dark fun on like an almost arachnophobia level which also has bill Pullman in now that i think about it 
that sort of um you know it's like gothic for kids sort of vibe um bill pullman isn't in arachnophobia isn't he no oh he should have been Jeff Would've better daniels is the, oh, which is fine yeah it's um, two names isn't it it's just it's the forename and surname thing that makes me up ah uh, yeah it's like they brought two names so yeah it was, it's always tricky um <laughs> I think it was previously before this. It was like a, like you say, an animated series. So that's probably where the friendly ghost. The friendly ghost, yeah. Yeah, it's directed by Brad Silberling, who also did um, Lemony Snicket, and that had a really cool, like, dark comedy atmosphere to it. So that was nicely done. Yeah, I might actually watch this because I've never seen it. And yeah, I've got a feeling I watched it when I was at school. I would have been mm. like ten or whatever, and just watching it in the sort of what's it called the not the not registration. What's the main hall they call in schools? Assembly, right. that 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 sort of thing. But um, yeah, it's it's a nice one to revisit, definitely. Cinematography by Dean Cundey. That name is familiar from old uh, John Carpenter, of course. Oh really? Old John Carpenter's films, yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah it, it is it is a nice, it's very nicely sort of um set the dress set dressing and everything it is it is pretty to watch to look at with your eyes and your feet um what channel is that on that was on amazon prime good okay yeah. well also on prime is no retreat no surrender oh my god you watched it we covered this recently, I can't remember. Yeah, I covered the shit out of it, but I'm happy to listen to it again. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Good. Okay, just a recap. <laughs> this um, guy runs a karate studio and is attacked by business, this businessman and his thugs. One of the thugs is Jean-Claude Van Damme, who plays a Russian in this, obviously, for no reason, actually, thinking about it. Um, anyway, so he's attacked, so... They moved to Seattle, let's see, and the guy's son, who's obsessed with Bruce Lee, sets up a training room in the garage. Um, he also befriends uh, a black kid who raps and break dances. And if you remember, there's also the, a fat bully kid who we literally yeah. we first see him eating a cake in the middle of the street. It's amazing. <laughs> anyway, so the kid's father, he he's imposes strict discipline and he doesn't want his kid taking risks but of course the kid is frustrated he just wants to fight so he joins karate class yada 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 it's kind of like a half-assed karate kid type thing but with a much looser plot and uh so the kid his name's jason anyway he there's all sorts of rivalries and stuff in the in the dojo um uh, and yeah, it's basically a karate kid kick off, uh, rip off, but with much goofier humor and worse performances. Apparently, it spawned two sequels as well. It just really, really lacks focus. I found because there's not really a tournament as such. Just sort of from the perspective of the main kid, it's just a kind of general desire to train as a fighter. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I... My my uh, my coverage of this was much more steeped in nostalgia than yours, I think. Yeah, it, it it's also much more mean spirited than something like Karate Kid because Karate Kid was all about the students like learning to respect each other, 
but in this every like individual is just really power hungry like from the sensei down right down to the students it's directed by Corey Yoon who I guess is best known in the West for co-directing the original transporter i.e the fight scenes the mm-hmm. fight scenes are okay but they have astonishing sound effects in them of like smashing wood and like I don't know, like bins being pushed off roofs and stuff. It was. I would wager that they're also sped up a bit. <laughs> yes, yeah, there was a bit of that too. This. Oh my god, yeah, there's there's a scene right. I had to make a note of this. It's a scene where Jason, the kid, he is at a party, and he gets beaten up at <laughs> yeah. this party, right? And then he flees in his car, and then you see him in the car driving away literally seconds after the incident we've just seen and we get a monochrome flashback of the same incident that just occurred at the party <laughs> as if to say i oh, remember this it's like yeah it literally cut away it was just a minute ago we just saw it anyway there's a <laughs> there's a dream sequence where bruce lee visits him to give him advice and he just and he just does not go away after that he's there for the whole training mon- montage he's there beyond that as well he's given him advice at the end he might as well have an after credits scene to be honest he just doesn't <laughs> go away um there's a dance-off scene in this movie where the dancing doesn't match the music and the crowd's clapping doesn't match the rhythm of the music either so that was amazing <laughs> um the <laughs> there's a bit where they want to this characters get is meant to depict characters like getting on a plane as in taking off on a flight right but you know like normally they have like some sort of footage of like a plane from the runway sort of thing or nearabouts in this the footage is like shot from outside the fence of an airport so clearly they just didn't even have access to stock footage they just filmed the local airport the outside the performances are astonishing the editing is staggering and it's almost worth all this because of the last 20 minutes because it's the most ridiculously chaotic fight tournament in the world. I mean, it's meant to yeah. be—it's meant to be like Seattle versus New York, but the New York guys—they just offer up John Claude Van Damme and say, "Right, you can just beat up everyone." And John Claude Van Damme's known as the machine of annihilation, of course, and he doesn't follow any rules, and he just beats up the ref. He doesn't care, and in the end, of course, he has to be confronted by the kid. That's the idea. And I thought the choreography was actually quite good in the in the last that last sequence. It's just so ridiculous. But bear in mind, this is not a Jean Claude Van Damme film. It's a film where Jean Claude Van Damme just stands around in the background and then pops up at the end. Yeah, it's no AWOL, absent without leave. But I did like the last twenty minutes. Um, I'm gonna just you what you said. Then I just don't like you lying to our listeners, really. Mm. Um, well, <laughs> there's so much to say, Rupert. To you know, as a rebuttal, the the, the flashback where he's in the car, and mm. uh, he, you said, oh, he just shows what happened a second ago. Come on, Rupert, you're short selling everyone. It shows a build-up of everything that's happened since he's been in Seattle, the bad things, with the mm. meaning being that like it ends, it culminates in that sequence from a few seconds ago to say like that's the straw that broke the camel's back, which then leads on right. to Bruce Lee turning up as a as a as an hallucination. <laughs> yes, 
but he does leave because he leaves after he's taught him everything he needs to know and he disappears into a portal. Oh, for about it. half a bloody hour, though, isn't it? It's like you're thinking, you're thinking he's just going to rock up and it's just for the montage sort of thing, but he just doesn't go away. <laughs> no, and also, you missed them, them, one of my favourite parts of the film is his dad. The kind of emasculation of his dad and how how, how he like just is like getting sadly beaten up in a bar when he used to be this you know this like yeah. great fighter, <laughs> and even when even at the end when his son like kicks John Claude Van Damme's ass and is is winning even then he's kind of like oh okay he's so he's so pathetic it's, such a broken man <laughs> yeah no I understand that my my views a bit steeped in nostalgia but um. Yeah, I do, and yeah, the whole thing like the the fat kid who just leaves the film halfway through, or the fact yeah. that um, like there's nothing made of that at all, is there? You think you you're just assuming that all right, you have this fat bully, and in a better film, a better written film, what would happen, of course, is that he'd be a fat bully at the start, but they'd learn to kind of like work together or something, or he'd learn that there's actually something nice about him. No, nothing, absolutely nothing. He's just an unpleasant person and then he leaves the film <laughs> um, i also enjoyed how with um with the the guy who runs the dojo that he gets sort of get kicked gets kicked out of halfway through yeah. when he when he goes to that party when they all beat him up and bully him outside when they're having the, they're having their cake and biscuits <laughs> when how that guy just just it was clearly in his like late 50s <laughs> is just like lusting after that 17 year old and just assumes that he's going to just get with her because he's beaten up someone else in front of her like that's all <laughs> so in his yeah it's like what but no i do i do like, i haven't seen apparently the um the sequel uh no retreat no surrender 2 has got matthias Hues in it with um who was the main bad guy a common beast in uh dark angel and he stars in that with I'm gonna forget his name now. It's like le, it begins with an L. Um, but yeah, and then it was filmed in. They just filmed it in Louis Guzman. No, if only it was. What is his name? I have to find out now. Because I, I only know this because he was in, interviewed on um, the Scott Atkins podcast during lockdown. Come on, keep up. Hang on, no retreat. Oh my god, there's so many words. No surrender to. I'm sure they filmed in. Uh, Something like Ty. Ty Foley was I think it was actually in Blind Flech Eye. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, Lauren Avedon and Matthias Hues. And right. yeah, they they filmed it. Oh, and Cynthia Rothrock, my god. No no link. No link to No Retreat, No Surrender. Yeah. Good. And it was called Raging Thunder in the Philippines. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I need to. Well, I, I say I don't need to watch the second and third ones. Now I sort of do. Directed by Corey Ewan again. He came back for it. He didn't care. I'd say his strong point is the fight scenes. <laughs> we'll say that. Yeah, the sped up fight scenes. <laughs> well, it's. Uh, are you out of movies now? Um, I think I'm out of movies for now. I'll I'll let one roll over to the next one. Next, oh, okay. Next step. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna quickly talk about Short Circuit, which is the oh, yeah. second John Badham film I watched. Yeah, right. I, I know we're coming up to our two hour limit now, so I'll try and I gotta say we started off with this and I said I've only got six films, but we really stretched it out. Maybe we're oh, talking yeah. more slowly. Um Yeah, I, I this is another film that I, I saw a lot as a child, but like as a very young child, I think. I got a feeling I had it on VHS. I don't remember seeing it in my teenagers at all, but so watching it now was just almost like really opening a box in my mind. Like I can remember certain shots and sequences mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, can you remember not understanding the joke when the 
couple get stopped by the police and they say there's grass in the um, glove compartment. No, I didn't even that, notice that this time around. I think I'm so anti-drugs that I think when that <laughs> happened, I just like... I, just I never understood why they had, would have a, like grass in the glove compartment. That doesn't make sense. Um, yeah, so the, the plot is that uh, Nova Laboratory um, is building a load of military robots. I'll keep this brief. We're building a load of military robots and... Uh, one of them gets struck by lightning. There's five robots. The fifth one gets struck by lightning and effectively becomes sentient. Um, but it comes almost like a toddler in how he's just going around trying to work out how the world works and what things are. He ends up bumbling into Ali Sheedy's house, who has a kind of snack van. She lives in a sort of uh, like suburban. Um, basically, she lives in a suburban uh detached house that she clearly couldn't afford if she drove a burger van around that's what it boils down to and she has the most astonishing floor tiling and wallpaper i've ever seen this is 1986 um and she believes he's an alien and tries to uh like learn more about them but then when he becomes a robot she calls how uh how labs nova labs to kind of pick him up then realizes he's actually sentient and then they go on the run with steve gutenberg in hot pursuit um it's a it's a it's a weirdly film because it's really sentimental. It's a bit of a mishmash, but it's also it's also quite nice. In that I was watching this with Faye. She sort of came in about twenty minutes in and said, like you know, Johnny Five, Short Circuit, the main the main the main robot in it. The way he's designed it, it there's a lot of character there. Like with especially because they've the way they've designed the eyes, there's a lot of facial expressions, and he is kind of very easy to like, and he's completely innocent. Ali Sheedy and Steve Gutenberg are acting in this film. I realized after a few minutes, I thought, you were shouting. You were shouting as loud as you can with every line you deliver. Um, Steve Gutenberg is, is pressed at the start when um, the military commander says, oh, you know, who, who's the – a journalist says to them, who's the, the brains behind these creations, these robots? And they're like, oh, he's this – and they make out he's this really – nerdy distant awkward character and it cuts to steve gutenberg was like tanned buff and just like really jovial and friendly and, and you know it's, it's like it doesn't match to what was in the script mm. fisher stevens in this huh. isn't an asian man <laughs> but he does a good job with obviously like watching it now you think you're you're a white man in brown face putting on an indian accent but does he actually be- did he actually wear blackface in that? I can't remember if he's. If you if you look at a picture of Fisher Stevens now and you look uh, at him in this, it's like he either there's a filter on that camera, uh, or he has um, been reaching for the for the bronzer. It's uh, a real tr- it's a tr- it's troubling because he is actually really cool in it and actually quite charming. Yeah, so yeah like he's, you can't yeah, really yeah, actually it, imagine anyone else in the role. Yeah, and he actually has like the best lines. And he sort of does it with I wouldn't, you know, not a reverence to the culture, but the accent is okay, it's laid on thick, but it's yeah. like he is it's not a silly throwaway character. He's actually like a key character in the film, even though he literally just leaves it about two thirds of the way through. <laughs> The, the hero of this for me, though, and I did enjoy this film again because it unlocked um, memories from my mind being away for a thousand years. G.W. Bailey, the commandant from uh, the Police Academy films as well. Oh, God. He is funny in this. He is constantly just like peeping out of the top of a truck wearing like full military regalia, just losing his temper. 
And there's one line, I'm going to say it now, it, well, it's not even funny when I say it, because it's just how he delivers it with this like slowly rising crescendo, where when they get away from them again after about the 14 millionth time, he looks to the, the main guy from Nova Labs and says to him, this little thought of a robot of yours is really starting to give me the red ass. And it's the way he, it's the way he sort of like his voice rises as he talks. And I had to pause it. I was laughing so hard. And um, I just thought, oh, do you know what? I, he kind of, there's something about GW, uh, George William Bailey that reminds me of Herbert Lom in mm. the Pink Panther films in, in the, um, you know, the sort of, um, fiery tempered uh, yeah. commander and and, I, and then it reminded me when I was in the shower and I was just thinking about short circuit one of the funniest scenes of the pink panther is I don't know which one it is because I get them all mixed up where Herbert Lom loses his mind and he goes from being like the commander in a police station who thinks of Peter Sellers as a buffoon to like some European count in like a, a, a thunderbolt laden castle and they say, oh, who's who's behind all this? Who's got this death row that's going to end the world? And someone in, like, the Pentagon says, oh, this is the only picture that one of our men has managed to get of him, sir. And he hands it over. And it's just clearly a publicity shot of Herbert Lom wearing a cape, like, perched on a wall, looking and smiling over his shoulder. And <laughs> even saying that out loud, I can see it in my head. It's so funny. But, yeah, it's... um. I feel like if George William Bailey and Herbert Long were in a film together, I'd we'd all be laughing into Armageddon, and uh, it sadly will never happen. Please don't so that, make that the Arkansas this week. <laughs> no, I was trying to make it a man to a woman, a Herbert okay. Long to GW Bailey. That would be a tough one, wouldn't it? Um, well, actually, that can be a bonus one now that you said it. So if you can get from Herbert Long to GW Bailey, like. Love to know that. Um, mm-hmm. But the the main arc is that for this week is Kelly McGillis mm-hmm. to Eric Idle. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I don't know why you're laughing, Rupert. There's two illustrious careers there to, to dig into. Kelly McGillis to Eric Idle. They um, don't I'm, mix in the same circles, do they? And you can uh, send your other messages them to me if you're known to the show, or you can uh, email your answers to um, the men who talk, talk at outlook.com. So I suppose now it's just at the point we talk about our films of the week, Rupert. Top Gun Maverick. Uh, Top Gun Maverick for you. That's um, it. Yeah, for me, I suppose. I enjoy, <laughs> comedy aside, not too. Basically, it's a choice between Casper's Short Circuit and and The Hard Way, which is three films I've never had to say. I, I would say. I would Casper was the the best film all round, mm-hmm. really. Yeah, so yeah, that's it for me. I would say uh that's an end of Kino Kinder fifty five. Love to all and uh, Rupert, I'll chat to you again soon. Love you. Goodbye. Love for you now. more. <laughs>